Welcome to History of College Football Podcast. I am Jay Abramson, and I will take you down a gridiron memory lane. The national champions, the teams, the rivalries, the conferences, the Heisman winners, the rankings. Today, we are lucky to have a very special guest, Mr. Darren Hayes, host of the podcast Pigskin Dispatch and founder of pigskindispatch.com. That's P-I-G-S-K-I-N-D-I-S-P-A-T-C-H.com a site dedicated to preserving the memory of football nostalgia. His podcast may be found at pigskindispatch.com or follow him at Twitter at pigskindispatch. Now, Darren, your podcasts are dedicated to preserving gridiron history and, and you do a remarkable job. I commend you. I'm honored that uh, you know, I have you as my guest. Darren, can you tell me a little bit about your podcast? Well, well, certainly. Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words and thank you for having me on here. It's uh, quite an honor to be on, on your podcast. I listen to it quite often. Uh, the goal of pigskindispatch.com is that we want to preserve football history and we want to try to do it one day at a time. We're on a mission right now of going 365 straight days of having football history for that particular day. Uh, you know, if it's uh, May 15th, we're talking about football history that happened on May 15th. And included in that, we talk about all of the Hall of Famers from the College Football Hall of Fame and the Pro Football Hall of Fame. We honor them on their dates of birth. And we talk a little bit about them too as part of our uh, daily um, podcasts. And uh, we also um, wanna make sure those legends are recognized and remembered uh, all throughout history. And uh, we wanna have a good presentation and uh, have people make it enjoyable. All right, Matt, I admire your goal of preserving the history of football. I really do. And it's quite an expanse that you have. Very, very good job. I've listened to your podcast as well. Excellent job. Thank you. you If I may ask, how did you first decide to create your podcast? Well, I've been uh, around football one way or another all the time. You know, as a a youngster, I I watched quite a bit with my my father's a big football family. We go to high school games, the local college games here in Western Pennsylvania. Um, watched a lot of NFL football, go to a few games. And I live in Erie, Pennsylvania, and we're about 100 miles away from Cleveland, Pittsburgh, and Buffalo. So, and I'm a Steelers fan, so it made it kind of interesting this year with the Browns and Bills doing so well. Um, but I was to, after I got out of high school and got into college to make some extra money, I became a high school football official. And I did that for 27 years. I retired about five years ago. And I, while I was doing that, I was writing for a few uh, now defunct officiating websites. Uh, I got signed to do a lot of f- football rules history and the origins of uh, equipment and rules and how, how they developed. And it really just meshed with my, my love of football and the nostalgia of it really intrigued me. And I just, I just kept doing it. Absolutely fascinating. You have extensive experience. Fantastic. Well, today we're here to discuss Walter Camp and his impact on college football. So just a little bit of history for all of us out here. Walter Camp was the head coach of the Yale Bulldogs from 1888 to 1892. And then he moved on to be a Stanford Cardinal coach from 1892 and then from 1894 to 1895. And he's credited by many for setting us all on this path of college football. On our podcast, episode 15, we discussed the top 10 reasons to love the storied history of Ivy League football, which is the oldest conference in the annals of college football. And in that segment, we touched upon the significance of Walter Camp. 
He actually showed up twice in our rankings at number four and then again at number two. So before we travel back to 1888, when he became head coach at, at Yale, let's start with really what the game of college football looked like from 1869 to 1876. See, 1876 was the year that Walter Camp arrived at Yale as a player, and he had an immediate impact on college football. As a player in 1880, he proposed at the College Football Rules Convention this notion of a line of scrimmage. So naturally, I'd like to begin with from 1869 to 1880, in your estimation, before there was this line of scrimmage, what did college football look like back then in that first decade? Well, probably the best way to describe it is to use some modern games that uh, we'd be familiar with today. Um, if you go, and there's a couple of key uh, football history games of American history that we can look at. First of all, we had 1869, this year we're starting here. That was the, the first, what people say was the official uh, American football game. And we had uh, Princeton and Rutgers play. And that was more, if we looked at it today, we would say, hey, that's a game of soccer because they were playing by England's football association rules. And the word soccer comes from the word association. Uh, and that's how they distinguished it. That's how at least how we still call it that way in America, calling it soccer. So that was really a soccer game by today's standards. The second game you want to look at, and it's actually two games, is you had the Harvard versus McGill games in 19, or in, sorry, 19, 1874, and it was a two-day event, and they played both of them, I believe, at Harvard, and one day they played by the way Harvard played, and it was more of a game of soccer, just like the Princeton, Princeton Rutgers game was. McGill from Canada, they played more of a game that was we would recognize today as rugby, and so that's sort of what I consider the sort of the first uh, formations of footballs that 1874 game more so than the 1869 game. And that's sort of how the games went. The, si the sizes of the fields varied. Uh, they went anywhere from 166 yards long and hundred yards wide down to almost what we have today, about 53 yards wide and 110 yards long back then. So it's kind of interesting. They arrayed from different, uh, number of players on each side that were active participants. Uh, some games there was 20 players aside. Some years it was 25 aside. So it's it kind of an interesting time and a lot of variations to the game. Absolutely fascinating. Very good. Let's go to uh, not the man, Walter Camp, but rather to one of the specific teams he coached in, in our podcast. Again, the top 10 reasons to love college football. Sitting at the number four position, we discussed that team. It was the 1888 Yale Bulldogs, 13 and 0. The old Bulldogs average win was by a score of 54 to nothing. The Bulldogs shut out every one of their opponents and scored over 60 points six times. Yale beat Wesley in 105 to nothing. And their closest game was a 10 to nothing shutout over Princeton. And again, the coach of this team was the legendary Walter Camp. So Darren, can you shed some light on the dominance of that football team, that season, that Yale Bulldog football team? But you bring up some very interesting and astonishing statistics from that game. But if you add all that up, the 1888 Yale team outscored their opponents 698 to zero. I mean, that's like mind blowing. You can imagine if Alabama did that in today's game, it would be astonishing, you know. Um, but Camp, he was really commit, committed to Yale football. 
was he was a gamer and uh, he was all in. And he went to every single rules meeting and he wrote many of the rules. You know, as we, we talked a little bit about 1880, where he really set the bar for what football is. And he was a very methodical man and did things like he had specialized drills for uh, different player positions. Uh, and they practiced it based on their position. He even had his wife, Alice Graham Sumner, who he married in 1888. When he had to work and there was a practice going on, he'd, se he'd send her to go take notes of what was going on at practice. So um, <laughs> and she'd bring home the notes and uh, you know, correspond with them what was going on. Um, when he, his team didn't have a game, he was an official. He was the referee on other teams playing. So he got to see firsthand what the other teams were doing. And I think he probably did this purposely to almost like a scouting mission and be right out on the field. So he was very involved in that. Um, the writer of the time was probably the, one of the greatest football historians that I use a lot of his work, Park H. Davis. In his book, The Football, The Intercollegiate Game, which was published around 1911, he described that Yale team as he, in his own words, he said, Yale conceived the idea of sending a player in advance of the runner through the line. Commonplace now, but revolutionary when it was first disclosed. So, you know, you, you think about that. He was sending, you know, like a fullback through the line to block for a halfback, and it was never done before. Just innovations like that that we take for granted today. That's the way this man thought, and that's why he's one of the greatest innovators ever in probably all sports. Absolutely. Very well said. And, and I have, there's one other thing that 1888 team had, it had some amazing players and I'm going to just read you some of the names of these players on that. They, they were stacked. They had Lee McClung, who you may never heard of, but this next guy, Pudge Heffelfinger, he ended up being the first paid player in football history. First professional player. He, he was a stud. Uh, William Paw Corbin. And then here's another famous name. Amos Alonzo Stagg was on that roster. Oh, yes. So when you have great players, you have an innovative coach and who's very involved. I mean, that's that's part of the ingredients of having a great team. 698 to, to zero outscoring your opponents. That's still still mind blowing, though. <laughs> I guess it's easy to say we'll we'll never see that again. Probably not. <laughs> In our podcast, the top 10 reasons to love Ivy League football, we had in the number two position Walter Camp's time as head coach of Yale Bulldogs and you touched upon many of his impactful uh, insightful ways that he he conducted himself as head coach and and as mentioned Walter Camp was a Bulldog coach for uh, five years 1888 to 1892 in that time he compiled the 68 and 2 record posted three unscored upon undefeated teams in those five years in 70 games, his defense has posted 66 shutouts. In the four others' games, his defense yielded a total of 43 points. Now, this means basically his defenses at Yale gave up a total of 43 points during his five seasons. So can you shed a little bit of light on the dominance of the Yale Bulldog team during his tenure at Yale? Well, we, we mentioned some of the, some of the players. That's really where it starts when you have great players. And there's some Hall of Famers uh, from College Football Hall of Fame that weren't on that uh, that 1888 team we just talked about. And they were like Frank Kinky and Bill Hickok. They were in the early 1890s. So he had some great players through his whole tenure tenure at Yale. Um, I guess maybe best way to tell is a, a little story about camp. Um, there was a the coach at Harvard who was their rival back then too, 
as is to this day, uh, Lauren Deland, who was also kind of a friend of the Camp family, and they actually wrote a couple of football books together. Uh, Deland is most famous for, he created the Flying V Wedge. He sort of resurrected it from earlier, but he right. sort of perfected it. And uh, Deland decided he was going to spring this, this V Wedge on the Yale game of 1892. And what he expected was he was going to line up and he was going to expect the teams to start uh, and jump off sides because back then there wasn't a rule where you had to have seven people on the line of scrimmage. He had all 11 sort of 10 yards off the ball and they were going to run up there. They were expecting Yale to jump off sides. Yale would get warned. They would sort of be flat footed on the next play and then he'd spring the wedge on them. Well, it didn't happen that way. Yale men, they didn't move at all. They defended the play well. Dillon was confused. He was flabbergasted. Harvard loses the game. Well, it comes down about a few months later. They're on a trip for the, uh, I believe it was track and field. And one of the players started talking to camp. Camp went on the trip too with the track and field team. And they started talking and he, uh, camp disclosed that Yale knew about the play before it ever started. And what had happened was when Dillon was, practicing the play there was a gentleman and I, I don't have his name that donated the, the practice field for Harvard he was there observing them and he was from and he went back home to California after that he was with one of his old cronies having a, a social drink out in public talking about this describing this great play that was coming about the next table over was a Yale man sent a telegraph to camp you know a couple weeks before the game started say hey here's what they got planned and huh. camp was prepared. So it's just, it was kind of an interesting story, but that's just the kind of man camp was. He had, he had eyes everywhere and he, he knew how to react to something that was sort of out of the ordinary. Yeah, he was a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and you touched upon this as impact on college football as we see college football today in its current incarnation. Can you shed a little bit of insight as to what Walter Camp meant in terms of his innovations and his impact on college football, really shaping it into the game that we see today played on the field. Well, I mean, again, I'm going to go back to what the way Park H. Davis, who was, you know, contemporary, he actually saw some of Camp's innovations happen and sat there in rules meetings and watched them. And Camp, or I'm sorry, Davis said that Camp, you know, definitely he created the line of scrimmage. I mean, that's the biggest thing that separated American football as we know it from rugby and soccer. Uh, he set a limit to 11 players, very big. I mean, we were looking 25, 20 players when he, he started doing this. Uh, he set a system of downs and yard to go. It first started off there, I think it was three, three downs with 10 yards to go. Um, he established most of the player positions, including the backs and the center and the quarterback. You know, when you have uh, this, the snap got created when they did the scrimmage. So, of course, the center and the quarterback that had never happened before in other sports. They, football did adopt the halfback and fullback positions from soccer and rugby. Uh, he designed special drills and exercises for the players, as we talked about earlier. I mean, what would a football practice today be like if the, the linemen were doing the same drills that the uh, you know, defensive backs were? You know, it'd be kind of kind of silly, but. You know, nobody thought about it back in the you know early 1880s. Um, 
many of the officiating techniques, I'm going to put my, my stripes on here for a second, <laughs> and the, the, the officiating techniques and positions, the position of referee, the position of umpire, some of their duties that they did were assigned to back in the early 1880s and 1890s when they were created, they're doing those same things today. The umpire's over the ball and sort of in charge of that football that's laying on the field. The referee's sort of in charge of the offense and making sure, you know, the huddles go off smoothly. Um, Camp was the first one to publish a football book so that the, the general public could understand what's going on in the game. He had countless articles and magazines and other publications that just being a great ambassador of the game of football. Um, he also created the All-America team with Casper Whitney. Uh, matter of fact, back the first 20 or so years, it was, it was called the Walter Camp All-America team. You know, <laughs> after his death, uh, they got taken over by some other uh, contributors. Um, and he also was a big contributor to what we now know as the NCAA. And those are probably his biggest accomplishments, and they're gigantic. They're huge. Absolutely <laughs> huge. So, so based on the wealth of experience you've had, what's your take on this generation's awareness of Walter Camp and his impact that he's had on this sport? Well, I don't know that a lot of people in this generation you know, other than us that, you know, like to get into a lot of football history, really know who Walter Camp is other than, oh, there's a Walter Camp award. And there's, you know, some thing, other things named after Walter Camp. I don't think they appreciate it. I mean, I, something is sort of astonishing to me is nobody's ever come up and made a, a movie about Walter Camp. You know, to me, it's, he has a great story, you know, from his whole life through football. I mean, the the gentleman died at a football rules meeting, you know, 1925. Uh -huh. He was at the Fifth Avenue Park Hotel in New York where they had many meetings and he, he died on, you know, night one of a two-day event, you know, <laughs> that's, that's some dedication. And it's just a shame. And I hopefully your your program, Pigskin Dispatch and some of the other great people out there will get the word out about Walter Camp and so people can appreciate what he's really do done for sport in general. Very well said. Couldn't have said it better myself. Very good. So, so you've, you've, you've gone and extensively to talk about his impact on the evolution of college football. So I, I got to ask you this question. In, in, in your view, how does this current version of college football's pass first, one option read, compare with yesteryear's three yards in the cloud of dust? Well, it's definitely made the game a lot more exciting for a spectator. Uh, it's multiplied the strategies. I mean, Football is such a complex game. Uh, those that haven't, you know, been around it and are just observers, it's not just two teams going at it and offense against a defense. All 11 of those players have a strategy they're trying to do against the, the guy across from them. And so it's so many games within games and chess match on chess match and strategy. And, you know, the coaches are, they're, they're brilliant. I mean, these coaches that we have, in, in all levels of football, high school, you know, little gritters on up. These guys are geniuses at what they're doing. They say, hey, th if this doesn't work, we'll go, go to, you know, we'll have to make an alteration or change, change this up. And it's going at all levels. It's not all on the team level. And I, I think the, you know, the passing game, Camp didn't really like the passing game. He was against it when it, when it happened. But I think he would appreciate the popularity and it wouldn't have gained the popularity if the passing game hadn't come in and the wide open offenses. Fascinating, fascinating. 
can you, uh, if we return out of Walter Camp, can, can you speak to what he was like, what the man Walter Camp was like? Well, according to what I've read, he had very many interests. I mean, he originally, he went to grad school to be a doctor and he even played football when he was in medical school. Um, but then he came, decided not to be a doctor. His uncle had uh, owned a clock factory, the, the New Haven clock factory. They were in New Haven, uh, Connecticut. And he eventually, he took over that family business as he was still coaching Yale. Mm. And he was a pretty good family man. He had a great passion for football. I mean, loved his wife, loved his children. But when it was football season, much like today, you know, men got to do what men got to do and you got to watch some football or <laughs> you got to go to the field, you know? So I think sure. that's what he was and very passionate. And I think he sort of started that ball rolling for probably many of us today and much to the many of our wives' chagrin. <laughs> Great insight. Great mm -hmm. stuff. Thank you. I, I got to ask you a few personal nostalgic questions, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, in, 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 your, in your estimation, just, just for you personally, what was the most stunning upset you've ever watched? Uh, I'll tell you, I think the game in 2007 when App State knocked off Michigan. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and I didn't get to see the whole game. I was watching another game and it was one of those things where the, the network said, hey, you got to see this. Michigan's you know, in trouble here. <laughs> And I, they tuned in, and I'll never forget it. Michigan's lining up for the tying field goal. App State blocks it, returns it inside the 10-yard line to end the game. That, that was just – that was stunning to the football world, I thought. <laughs> so is that the most memorable play you've ever watched? What would you, what would you call well, the most memorable I, I've, play you've ever watched? It's, it's right up there, but probably the most memorable play is probably Doug Flutie's miracle bomb when mm -hmm. he led BC over Miami. And that's stunning. It was like 47 to 45 with after his, yes. his long pass. I mean, it just, that play started at midfield. He's scrambling around. He's in trouble. You're thinking, okay, this game's over. Miami's, they're just too powerful for, for Boston College. He avoids the run, Russian and launches it from his own 40-yard line into the end zone. I mean, that that's the thing that, you know, you, movies are made about that kind of thing. That's just Absolutely. amazing. It was such a great game up until that moment as well. So to cap it off in that fashion was just incredible. It certainly was. So I have to ask you, who is the most memorable player that you, you've seen? Uh, college players, I would say. I mean, I'm a Northwestern uh, Pennsylvania guy. Tony Dorsett. Oh. I mean, Dorsett in college was oh. phenomenal. I mean, he was – and that's sort of one of my earliest memories. I was probably, you know, 10 years old and sort of starting to watch football in the mid-'70s and – Dorsett was it. Unfortunately, you know, as a Steeler fan, he went to the Cowboys, but hey. Uh, but on a personal level, I've got a couple of favorites. And these are some guys that I officiated here in Erie, Pennsylvania when they were in high school. And the first one, maybe not too many people know about, was Brian Milne. And this is right at the end of the probably late 80s, early 90s. And Brian Milne played for a high school here, Fort LaBeouf High School here in the Erie area. And as a junior, he sort of destroyed all of the rushing records for the whole county and our whole district here in Pennsylvania, in Northwestern Pennsylvania, as a junior. And one of my first officiating games, I was a young official and they stuck me in as a substitute on this big game. And I was an umpire, defensive backfield. Really probably didn't belong in that position because uh, you have everything coming at you. And Milne 
had a run up the middle and he cut back, got tackled on top of me. I didn't, wasn't smart enough to get out of the way. And after they impiled everything, they, they had to stop the game because that's when he set the rushing record for the, the county. Oh, wow. And they stopped, thank God they stopped the game because my, my crewmates, you know, stood me up, brushed me off, you know, slapped me around <laughs> a little bit to get, to get, the, get back to life a little bit. Uh, he suffered some bad adversity his senior year, you know, so prom after a promising junior, he uh, contracted, uh, I believe it was leukemia, or it, might, it, was, it was something, some cancerous disease. I'm not sure exactly. I don't remember exactly what it was. And he lost his whole senior season. Oh. And we had an all-star game. Uh, we have it every August up here for charity. And he got to play it. He was, got well enough. He was able to play in that. And he was playing for Penn State. He, Joe Paterno still recruited him. And Joe Paterno allowed him to come up and play. They were having uh, spring or having uh, drills to get prepared for this preseason. He allowed him come up here for that night. He drove up that night. It was a Saturday, came and played the game, had the game of his life, you know, record crowd watching this kid just, you know, you know, he, 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 people had him his career over, had a great, you know, all-star game, very memorable. Everybody's on their feet. The hair stood on the back of your neck this whole game. Goes down to back to Penn State, has a great career there. Uh, he had his big game was in 1994 against Illinois. He scored three touchdowns, including the game winner. And it was Penn State's largest comeback victory under Paterno. So wow. that's a lot of years of football. Biggest wow, one. Something right there. Yeah. He ended up going into the NFL, played for the Colts, the Bengals, and the Seahawks, you know, sort of bounced around a little bit. The other young man is from Miri, is somebody much more well known, and that's James Connor, plays for the Steelers right now. Sure. He played for McDowell High School up here, went to Pitt. We all know about his his story down there, how he had an illness, overcame it, and became a professional starter in the NFL after a brilliant career at Pitt. And I I had the honor of being on the same football field officiating these young men and they were brilliant and I, I love their stories and I love how they, they came back from adversity and overcame it and got their, their bodies right. So very, those are my two favorite college players. <laughs> very touching and for good reason, clearly very well said. So I have to ask you one last question in your, in your opinion, who is the most memorable coach in your lifetime? Well, with my family name, you know, Woody Hayes is probably the obvious choice and I don't believe there's any relation, but uh, my grandfather thought he was the greatest because they had the same last name. And probably a lot, a lot of my family would probably say, oh, probably Joe Paterno being a Pennsylvania sure, kid. Sure. Uh, but I'm a Notre Dame fan and my favorite coach is Lou Holtz. Mm. I thought what Holtz did, not only at Notre Dame, but when he went to South Carolina, I thought he was brilliant. I mean, uh, I don't know if anybody has ever got the chance to listen to him talk in person uh, or got to read any of his books, but his wisdom that he took from the football field and he shares with others to this day, it's, it's outstanding. And that's why he's one of my, probably my favorite college football coach of all time. That's great. Mm -hmm. You are a wealth of knowledge, good sir. I've got to have you on again. Oh, I want to thank you, Mr. Darren Hayes. You have been a phenomenal guest. Again, Mr. Darren Hayes is host of the Pigskin Podcast. Found out. Pigskin Pot, excuse me, pigskindispatch.com, P I G S K I N D I S P A T C H.com, or follow him on Twitter at Pigskin Dispatch.
Thank you for listening to History of College Football. I am Jay Abramson. Join us every Tuesday and Saturday for a new episode.